Being a Better Man, episode 184. You have just entered a world governed by personal accountability where being a man is not an excuse for bad behavior, where complaints are not allowed, whining is forbidden, and excuses do not exist. Prepare to have your thoughts provoked, your ego challenged, and your character tested. It's time for Being a Better Man. Here's your host and fellow man in the trenches, Alf Herrickstad. Hey everybody, welcome to Being a Better Man. Welcome to the podcast that is focused exclusively on the character of men. We are focused on the character of men because that is what matters. It is our character that defines what kind of man we are above everything else. Our character defines what kind of son, brother, husband, father, and ultimately what kind of human being we are. That's why it's so important. I'm your host and my name is Alf Herigstad. Today, as usual, I'm broadcasting from the secret man cave hidden deep in the wilds of Washington State. But today, there's something different. Today, I have someone here with me, a special guest named Dan McDonald. I'll give you a little background. Dan McDonald is a personal friend of mine. In fact, he's my best friend outside of my blood family. He actually officiated the wedding of me and my wife. And we're blessed with his presence today because he traveled two and a half hours to my home to spend a couple days with us visiting, because that is what friends do. I've been wanting to have him on the show for some time because he's one of the best examples I know of a man committed to being a better man every day. And he also has a dynamic story that I think will reach a lot of you. And since he was already here, I thought this was a perfect opportunity. So Dan, welcome to the Being a Better Man microphone. Hello there, uh, and thank you, Alf. It's truly a pleasure to be a part of this. Um, I've listened to your podcast for some time, and I agree um, wholeheartedly in your efforts of discussing this and having an awareness of men being better every day. Uh, We will... uh, definitely be talking about this. It's a, it's a journey in life that I approach on a daily basis. Yes, we will, Dan. <laughs> it's so great to have you here. You know, you and I are from two entirely different backgrounds. We've both gone through many different trials and challenges in our lives, but our experiences are very different. And yet, here we are as friends. And under normal circumstances, our, our paths would have probably never crossed, but we're both officers in a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and that's what brought us together several years ago. I bring this up to make the point that even though we have very different backgrounds, we recognize something in each other, and that is character. Like I mentioned in the introduction, we were aligned on the critical issue of what it means to be a man. Do you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. Um, and you're right. I mean, it was something that uh, really uh, we, we recognized in each other immediately. Um, we can obviously, we are the same age. Well, actually, I'm a couple months older than you, but um, we have a lot of similarities, too, um, that we cherish as part of our uh, fun time together as, as guys, um, you know, music. And uh, we remember our childhood, that you know, the world, how the world was. But it is interesting with our differences in how we were raised and the effects that of those things that we really follow this path of our legacy as men, as fathers, brothers, 
it, that's so important um, to accept that. And you really have to open yourself up to who you are uh, and take a good look at yourself because that's where it all starts. The beginning is with self. You have to accept who you are and know that you're full of faults as well as all the positive things. And you have to embrace those things. And the rest is a labor of love. Love of self is really important. doesn't mean being selfish or um, ignoring everybody else. It's a matter of really acceptance of self. I could not agree more with that assessment, but uh, let's get into your story a little bit. I'm always talking about how all the experiences in our life, both good and bad, are the things that shape us into what we become. It's not just the experiences, but how we deal with those experiences. And you had a profound experience as a young man when you actually lost one of your eyes. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, that um, a very important age in your for all people, I think, um, is when they're adolescents. We're very worried about and concerned about our self-image, um, our our peers, and how we appear to the our peers, our popularity, that kind of thing. I was pretty full of myself. I was at the age of fifteen. I was a sophomore. I was attractive, um, healthy, great guy, easy to get a, be around. Um, uh, and again, I was full of myself. I was ego, which I think is a very dangerous thing as well as a necessary thing. Um, that's where it develops big time is it, at that critical age of adolescence. And mine, of course, was getting big. And then one day I was with my stepdad and my mother and we had just ate a big meal on a really hot day. I sat down to relax, and uh, I got up really fast to change the, the channel on the TV. And when I stood up really fast, um, my blood didn't catch up with, with the flow from stomach to, to brain. My world went black. Briefly, for about two seconds, passed out, which and I fell. I fell full force on a windowsill that was lined with crystal water goblets. And it sliced a small part of my cheek and up into my eye. And I lost my eye that day. The three hours of surgery, they, they were able to clean me up. And uh, the day I took the first bandage off at home, because um, I had not seen what I looked like yet, I was Frankenstein. I mean, it was traumatic. And right then and there, I was taught humility at a level that not many people see. And I know that there are people with worse injuries and that kind of thing. Burns are horrible, um, but it it changes that person when that level of injury that is so in, in appearance is there. And every time I walk into a room, and I look relatively normal. I have an artificial eye, a glass eye, as they call them. I look like I have a lazy eye. I look relatively normal, but believe me, I'm very well aware of it. And anytime I walk into a room or go somewhere in public, it's in the back of my mind right there of just, I look different than everybody else. So how how did this, um, you're right, it is a huge traumatic thing <laughs> to happen to a kid. How did that affect like the next two years after that? Because you were right before driving age and, you know, dating age and all that stuff. So, so how did that change your course, do you think? 
Well, uh, good question. Um, I immediately was faced with the fact that I I felt that I was physically unacceptable. I my ego was completely blown out. Now I have to go through this process of of um, self confidence building because I mean it was gone. My face was changed, and that's huge. And let's go to dating. Um, there was this young lady, um, same grade, in the locker next to mine in high school, and I had to wear a patch. Now, here's another bit of humility. At first, it was a gauze patch, not an eye patch, because it was still a wound, and it was still healing, and I had to go to school. In fact, I lost my eye on Labor Day, which meant it happened at the beginning of school, and I would go to school with this patch on, and once in a while the wound would drain and my patch would have a little stain on it. If that doesn't humiliate a person, um, I don't know what does. I mean, other than the loss of the eye. Um, I went through a couple minor surgeries and whatnot, but I mean, I, I just lost all my confidence. I couldn't even look at a, a girl, you know, and feel that I would be viewed as acceptable um, for dating, you know, that changed everything. And um, th- I remember there was this, a uh, young lady that was next to my locker and I, she was, oh, I, I had a crush on her, but I, I would never look at her. I mean, that's how far it went. My confidence gone. And, um, I never really told anybody that I had a crush on her, but I did. I did. She was very cute and very sweet and she would say hi to me. And I would very, I became very shy and I just looked down at my feet and say hi back to her. And, then uh, to, as the winter, as we got closer to winter break, she asked me out for the Christmas tolo. And a tolo is where the girl asks the guy to a, like a prom type event. I was just completely blown away. And fortunately, I was, got my artificial eye. The wound had healed enough and I got my artificial eye uh, just before the date. So I had a great date. It really gave me that little bit of boost I needed to begin the climb up to self-acceptance and, you know, self-confidence. And and how about uh, driving? Like, you couldn't have had a normal teenage experience after that. Like, when you became of driving age, uh, what happened? Well, driving, my peripheral vision is different. My my ability to have uh, good depth perception Um now, I mean, I drive everywhere all the time. I, I have no problem with it. But back then, I got my permit, my learner's permit, and within a year, I totaled two cars. That, that shut me down. And I lived in the city of Seattle and worked in the city of Seattle, and I depended on public transportation the whole time. I never got my driver's license until I was in my early 30s, and I became a parent, and the necessity of being able to drive was very important. And I'd pretty much gotten over uh, my challenges of death perception because that was a challenge back freshly after I lost my eye. I was still evolving and getting used to it. And and now I, you know, you've driven with me. You know, I've driven you around. Um, I, I just drive like anybody else. I, you know, there is no difference. And it, I probably made a bigger deal out of it then, but it was a big deal. Yeah, I always think about you know, in everybody's life, there's things that happen. And then you sometimes think, how would my life have been different if that wouldn't have happened? You know, and your life probably would have been different had that not happened. Just subtle little changes in in the course 
of your life. You know, doesn't really matter to speculate on it because it didn't happen that way. But I think the important thing to take away from that to me is things happen the way they're supposed to pretty much. And, you know, even horrible things that happen, I believe they happen because they were supposed to happen. But you went on after that and you became a musician. You always had a love of music. And eventually you became a band member in a popular group during the grunge scene in a band called the Fire Ants. And you experienced a, a certain level of fame and notoriety. Um, tell us about uh, some of that. Like you even met Kurt Cobain and some other famous people. Um, yeah. When I got uh, to working in Seattle, one of my first uh, jobs I got was at a company called Guitars Etc. It's very much like Guitar Center. It was a very large guitar, rock, rock and roll music store. And... Um, I became the shipping receiving clerk, eventually a customer service manager. But I threw that in. This was during the 80s in Seattle, before grunge hit. I knew everybody. I went to all the parties. I, I, you know, we were all part of this music scene, and we weren't famous yet. Nobody was famous, and it was just how it was. And being in the store, I got to see people, everybody, everybody's got to buy picks or strings or straps or sticks or whatever. And you, you just talk and you see each other. We all went to each other's shows and supported each other. And in that, I was able to connect with certain people, including the former drummer of Nirvana, Chad Channing, um, who would become my drummer. He is on their first album, Bleach, as well as a, a couple of uh, these brothers that were uh, tied to an early grunge band that had a tragic ending, Mother Love Bone. So my band, Fire Ants, was like a super group, very short-lived. Um, unfortunately, we had people with drug issues, um, so the short-lived, that that was it. I mean, it, we just fell apart because of drugs, really. But in our short tenure in Seattle, I remember, you know, we opened for Soundgarden, and uh, yeah, Kurt Cobain and the Nirvana guys came to see their old drummer perform, who, who was in my band, and uh, they came and saw our show. I'd been to you know the shows before, and I later on I I met Chris Novoselic uh, many times and um, things like that. But it, it was a very exciting time, and um, I really at that time I had a passion for being in a band and how hard you had to work. I cleaned up. I at one time had drugs. I'm, I know you're going to want to talk about that, but. Um, at that time, I was clean, and I had a lot of integrity in doing my very best because I knew that was the only way I could become a rock star. And I wanted to become a rock star just to make a living at playing music. That was the, I didn't. It wasn't about ego building at that point. I just loved playing music and performing live. What was the name of the band? Of that band, uh, Mother Love Stone. <laughs> Where did they come up with these things? <laughs> Um, so there you are, you have one eye, you're practically a rock star and there is a certain lifestyle that goes along with that. Like you alluded to, you know, drugs, sex, crazy hours, poor eating habits, whatever, the whole nine yards during this time of your life. I'm curious how you viewed yourself. Had you come into any awareness yet of what your manhood meant? Did you ever ponder the question, of what kind of man you were. And I'm asking this question because how old were you then? I was in my early 30s. Okay, so your early 30s. I think a lot of guys out there in their early 30s 
that's why I'm curious about it because I used to always ponder the question of what kind of man I was. I'm I'm wondering if that was your experience as well. Well, um, now I began my my music career, my my passion for it, or my dream to become a rock star. I I'm going to go back a little bit. I went to a seminar, and I can't even remember the guy's name. But I remember something very specific that he said, and this is, had an effect on me. He said, you are in control of yourself. You get to choose what you're going to do. But you have to believe in yourself, and you have to see that and visualize that and go for it. Some people call it manifesting. And, you know, I think a lot of kids, you know, here I am rebuilding my, my self-esteem, um, what little ego. I was still probably one of the best tidbits of wisdom I learned through losing my eye was the wisdom of humility. Very important. I, I have that probably at times to a fault. But compensation for that perhaps was my desire to be a rock star, not just so that people would go, oh, you're great and awesome and have people cheering for me. I did love to play music. It was a passion of mine. And um, unfortunately, and I at that time, I also due to some of the challenges I had with uh, my stepdad and, and uh, our dysfunctional relationship, I delved into, and some other pains in life, I, I delved into uh, self-medicating. I began smoking marijuana, drinking a lot. Um, by the time I was out of the house, um, I was taking every drug under the sun. Um, I dabbled in heroin, became a coke addict for a couple of years, and really... The whole time I was still very focused on music. I loved the music, but the, the whole partying culture of being a rock star and amongst all these musicians, we all had that in common. I didn't quite get into the sex thing so much because I felt that that took me too far away from my work in music. Um, it was more the drugs I could do while I was doing it. You can't have sex and play music at the same time. Well, yeah, I suppose you could, but that that was too much energy away from, from that. Um so, and yeah, poor eating habits and, and just being around an unsavory crowd. I was around other heroin addicts. I wasn't one myself, but I dabbled in it a little. I just saw people at, at their worst. And um, I was getting sucked into that. And I definitely knew I was coming up to a critical moment. Yeah, because then something happened, an event that changed everything for you and permanently turned your life in a different direction. And it had to do with your father. Can you tell us about that? Okay, we're going to go back in time then. Um, my father was a career Air Force officer. I was born in 1962, so that'll tell you, you know, the height of the Cold War. Um, he was very into his duty. So he, before he retired... He had, you know, to get the full retirement package as it was for an officer in the U.S. Air Force. He did one tour of duty in Southeast Asia, Vietnam War. And he left in the fall of 1967. And uh, we got the message on Thanksgiving Day of that year. But um, he was killed uh, November 17th, 1967. Yes, that changed my life. Um, I, at that age, I was five years old. There's no way I could have known how it was going to change my life other than I no longer have a father. But a five-year-old doesn't get that. My brother was 11, my sister nine. It, they, they were in the moment more profoundly affected than I was. I would be affected later on. In a way, I could say 
it is because through his death that I found my life. My sister and I were doing uh, uh, a reacquaint ourselves with our father. We went to visited his family in Memphis, Tennessee, and we drove from Memphis to Washington, D.C. because he's buried in Arlington Cemetery. And I had never been to the grave. My sister had. And I got about 20 feet, 20 feet within the gates of Arlington Cemetery and collapsed in grief. I was 25 years old. I had been, just like I had mentioned, I had been dabbling in heroin, a coke addict, drugs, alcohol. I knew that those things were starting to destroy my passion for music too. I was starting to lose the battle uh, or my life to these things. And going into that cemetery and going to my father's grave, I sat there for a couple hours and wept. And um, it, it definitely came to, to the point of what the hell am I doing with myself? What am I doing with my life? What am I doing to honor my father's who died at 37? He, he was killed. What am I doing? You know, I'm his son and I can't afford to destroy myself. And, and here I have a choice to make. And it was very shortly after that, after going to a big party, um, not a big party, actually, it was a small party of a bunch of very sick drug addicts uh, and putting very high-end chemicals into my body. I left the party, I got home, and I, I still was just loaded as all get out. And I sat there and went, what? Again, I asked the question, that I, same question I asked in Arlington. is like, what the hell am I doing to myself? And it was in that moment I just said, I am done. I said goodbye to many friends. I said goodbye to the drugs. And I made the choice of no more. I cold turkey, without going to any assistance programs or anything, cold turkey, I changed it around. I still drank coffee, and I at that time I smoked cigarettes, and I smoked a little bit of marijuana because I'm, I, I was an addict at that point. I had to keep something going. So I used those lighter things to work my way through saying, well, I didn't drink any alcohol. You know, I didn't drink alcohol for 10 years. I can now drink a little bit, but everything else is gone. I do not have no, I have no desire whatsoever. And it was a daily journey at that time. So would you say then that throughout this healing process, recovery process, it was the memory of your father in that moment at Arlington that kept you on course throughout it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I talk a lot about the importance of fatherhood and just the dynamic impact we as fathers have and that our fathers had on us. And not everybody had a great father experience, but you can still turn that around for something positive. I mean, your father died when you were five. And yet, as a grown man, he still had probably the most profound influence on your life. I think that's a powerful message and a powerful example of the importance of fatherhood, which, you know, you went on to get married and you had children, two boys that I know very well. And I've referenced them on the show before because I am so impressed by the quality of young men they have become. They're both very different from one another and from you, but they are still a reflection of you, their father, in the area of character. 
you've really done a fine job with these boys, and they are both dynamic men in their own right, which is a fantastic legacy that you have. We have a lot of single fathers in the audience, and it's a very common thing nowadays to be a single father. Can you tell us how you became a single father and the challenges that you encountered and how you managed to be successful? Share with the audience what your secret is to being a great dad. Well, not to be a smart aleck, but uh, I became a single father because I got a divorce. <laughs> um, it, it was something where their mother and I um, really became, were becoming two different people. Divorce is very nasty. I have watched it destroy both the lives of the, the man and, and the woman. Now, here's the lesson here. That, I, that, that little bit of wisdom of losing my eye I'm going to pass on is humility. Your ego is what will destroy you. And it is one's ego, both the man and the woman, when they have a nasty divorce, their ego is hurt. And they let that ego turn it into a nasty divorce. All it takes is one, one of those two. Um, the man or the woman or both of them, and they begin a nasty fight and the children are the victim. And it's their egos that ruin that. My divorce, I was very fortunate, but I, I feel that I had the wisdom and I discussed this with my soon to be ex, um, of like, at first, my first reaction was, I am going to take you to the cleaners. I am going to just make your life miserable. And I told her that. Uh, on the day that it, she announced she wanted to, to divorce. And, and the next day, I had turned that completely around and went, okay, I know it's no longer about me being pissed or hurt. It's about, I don't want my children to have a memory of this moment in life. And I don't want them to become victims. I don't want them to go through life thinking they're victims. I want them to look back at this and go, I have a good mom and I have a good dad. And I love them both. How can I do this? And this was something uh, my soon-to-be ex and I discussed. And we came to an agreement that we would try to communicate as well as possible, be as amicable as possible, and um, not get lost in the, um, in the game playing and show respect towards each other through this, despite the fact that we are going through a very hurtful thing. Well, and... You were fortunate, like you said. Not everybody has um, a soon-to-be ex that you can even communicate with. I was one of those. Uh, that's kind of how I wanted to run my divorce, but there was simply no communicating with their mother. So then you have to do the best you can, and and I I did I do the best I could, and I became a single father as well. But uh, throughout raising your sons as a single dad, what what lessons have you learned about that along the way? You know, being the primary parent for your children, a lot of dads are going through that out there. And how do you pull it off with the uh, good results? Well, I want to, I want to go back just a little bit. I, I was lucky. I want to, I was lucky that I had an ex that was willing to communicate. And that, that is some, that, that's a roll of the dice. I was lucky. Uh, I just want to make this point that it is really important to do the right thing. Because if you get lost in your anger, your children, this will affect their view on you. And you really have to pull yourself away from yourself and look at yourself. Okay. So to go on to 
my kids and and how I wanted them to be. Well, you know, there's a certain element that they pop out as they are in a way. I think there's an element of them. They're, they have a foundational thing. They come out the way they are. They're a culmination of all of those genes pooled together. You never know who they're going to be. Yeah, you never know who they're going to be. And yes, there are th- things in life that will shape them. One thing that is important to me is, I just like myself, is they are my children. They are my father's grandchildren and my mother's grandchildren. And, and so there's a whole ancestry, ancestral legacy, as well as these kids are going to represent me and my family. Now, again, I, you know, it's not about an ego thing here where I'm just so worried about the, my peers and what they think of me. But it is surely nice to go, I'm proud of my kids. There they are. And it's really cool to hear them say, that's my dad. Yeah, I, and we both had the, the joy of experiencing that. <laughs> I agree. I And I would put it this way, throughout my divorce struggles and single dad struggles, there was one thing that, uh, and I've talked about it on other episodes, it's just remembering what matters. What matters is those people who depend on you and everything you do, everything we do and say has an effect, has an impact on their perception of the world and perception is reality to them. So if they never see me lose my cool and call their mom names, they're better off for that. Even though inside I may be just screaming, you know, I have to, it's my responsibility and everyone's responsibility as a father to communicate respect for, for the children's mother, because even if you don't really feel it or mean it, it, it has a good impact on those children because those children came from you and her. They're going to evaluate themselves based on where they came from. And if uh, all they hear from one side or the other is how horrible the other side, what do you think that does for their self-image and their self-esteem? So we have to remember that as, as men and as fathers. So Dan, you and I, we see each other. We spend time together at least a couple days every month and sometimes more. You live a couple hours away, so it takes some effort, but we manage to maintain our friendship because it's a priority to us and the things we focus on expand and our friendship is important. And I'm bringing this up because I think it's something that a lot of guys miss, especially younger guys of a certain age. Most guys have groups of friends and social circles, people they do things with, and one or two best friends. And I think that often the value of these connections is taken for granted. People don't realize in the moment how valuable this friendship is. Because when we meet somebody that we're aligned with philosophically, when we encounter another man that can be a worthy mentor and an honest friend... It is an extremely valuable thing that cannot be overstated. And to maintain a friendship like that over distance and time requires effort. But it is an effort that is totally worthwhile for a man to make. Can you expound on that and give us your thoughts on how important it is for a man to have good friends? 
Oh, wow. That, that's really big. Let me say one thing here that's really should be noted. My two boys consider you like a second father. They, you are a very quality human being and they know that. They know you won't judge them harshly. You accept them as they are, but you also um, support doing the right thing and will challenge them in their thoughts of how they can think best for themselves. And they feel very comfortable with you. They both have come to you with issues in life that for whatever reason, they they didn't feel as comfortable coming to me, or perhaps they just wanted a different perspective. And and I can't tell you what that, I'm very proud to have a friend like that. And and that friendship is, is important. Now, I spent about 20, 20 years playing music. Uh, there was times I was in up to five bands at one time. When you play music with someone in a band, even if they're complete strangers, per se, you have to let the walls down, play music with someone. You, know, you can walk away from each other the next day or that night or whatever. And that level of, I'm going to call it intimacy of, of sharing, you know, being able to play music together uh, goes away. When you sing with someone, that's a, you know, when you raise your voice with someone or sing sing a song with someone and, and uh, that's it, that's an intimacy, I, I feel. And um, man, I had some messed up friends <laughs> in the music scene. I, there were people I certainly was aligned with. I, you know, we obviously agreed on music uh, to some degree. Uh, we could play music. But there were people that were self-destructive, that um, were manipulative, um, egos that were through the ceiling. And, you know, in the end, were they really my friends? And that day that I said goodbye to drugs was the day I said goodbye to most of the unhealthy friendships I had. A true friend accepts you as you are because you have to do the same thing to oneself. A true friend will stand by you. And has your back, regardless of how difficult the situation is. And um, it's just like, uh, you know, having a work party and all of a sudden the work gets really hard and, and, and there's a lot more elbow grease and muscle that has to be put into it. And that's when people, well, I got to go now. That's kind of like your, your friendships. When, when your life starts getting hard, who's standing there next to you? Who's got your back? It took a long time for me to meet the quality of man that you are, you know, to come across someone like you. I, I really don't have anyone that could compare in that quality. And I'm not just sitting there trying to stroke you. I, this is real. Um, I have very few friends that of that quality and, um, and I keep my friends close being a music. I had lots of people that wanted to be my friend. I, I don't really, I don't mind that people want to be my friend, but the people I want to be my friend, that's a whole different ballgame. And I keep those people close and they are few and far between. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't think it can be overstated the value of a good friend because we all have ups and downs in life and, and both of us have had downtimes and we go to the other guy and say, man, this is what I'm going through. What can you tell me? Sometimes you just need to hear it from another person's voice for it to sink in. Sometimes when we're in something, it's just too hard to be objective. And um, having an honest friend that'll tell you what you need to know is so important. And Dan, Dan, I'm really happy for you. You 
have been rewarded after everything that has happened in your life. You have met your love. That's something that not everyone gets to do in their life. I I was lucky. I got to meet my love, too. But uh, you'll be moving to join her in Colorado very soon. And while I'm sorry that we won't see each other as often, I am very happy for you, my friend. Yes, that I will miss seeing you in the frequency that we have had. Of course, one thing that will never change, we obviously will have the phones. I plan on visiting here as you can visit me as well. And um, we know that our houses are open to each other all the time, both figuratively and literally. I want to really say, I want to go back a little bit to friendship, and then we'll move right into this thing about my love and, and everything. But you being my best friend, you give me your wisdom when I need it. And you will stand by me. But one thing that is important about friendship is that you don't do the work for me. You make sure that I have your wisdom when I ask for it and when I need it, even when I don't think I need it. Um, you'll you'll give me words of wisdom, but you also know that in order to be a quality friend with you and vice versa, we know that we have to do the work ourselves. And that's what makes a good man. I mean, yeah, sometimes we're going to fall onto the ground and we're going to get kicked and it's nice to have someone, hey, here's my hand, pick you up, but you have to get up and walk and you got to do it on your own two legs and not be needy. It's not just a pride thing. It's about your character. You know, you have to face the fact that you are in charge and you get to, you have to start making your choices again. They're not always easy. So to move on to love. You know, of course, when I met my my wife uh, way back, I, you know, yeah, I was in love with her, I suppose. You know, it, it, it's sort of weird to look back on it now in, in retrospect. But in your 20s or whatever, you know, you th- think you know love. I didn't, I really didn't have a lot of girlfriends back then. Um, I, I had had a couple, a few, I should say, but I, I didn't know. I really didn't know what love was. I didn't know what it meant. I, you know. We all have uh, expectations of what marriage is going to be. Um, I didn't have a good example of it in my life. I knew you did. I didn't know what to expect. So to move forward to now, I have met someone who also had a been through a, a horrible mess of a marriage. And it was a very long marriage. And she was very loyal. And she stood by to do the best she could do for her kids who are now adults and they're great adults. You know, they're, they're good people. They're very strong people. And I, I think they're just amazing. Actually, I, I look at them as my, my good friends, they're very close friends. They're, they're fun to be around and uh, they're good people. They have very good values. I would say that their mother uh, is the anchor of those values. And I respect her for that. And to be in love with someone you respect, that's important. <laughs> that is huge. I respect her and accept her. I don't want to change her. Of course, our relationship will change each other because we're now in this relationship. With It's, it's a great and exciting part of life. And that, that will obviously change who we are to some degree. But I'm going to be continue to be me and do the things I do. And she accepts that. And she's not looking to change me in any way. Well, I am moving to Colorado, but that's a choice I made. I, I knew going into this, 
that if I choose to go into this relationship, but I knew going into this that she was right, I knew that moving was going to be most likely on me and not her because just the circumstances and I, I felt it and that I would make some very difficult decisions for me, but love was worth it because the location doesn't matter when you find that person. And I know that your wife had to make that decision to come and live with you. And that's what we have to do sometimes. Yeah. There's a lot of guys, I think uh, a lot of people in the world, men and women who you know, they've had a, a rough go of it in the love game. You know, you think you're in love and it turns out uh, maybe you're not or maybe they're not. And and it's a series of failed relationships for a lot of people. And I know that was the case for me, but it was very different when I finally did meet Luli because, and we talk about it now, like it was the same for her. It was very different. And we we use the term our match. We actually found our match, somebody who we are actually compatible with. There was no little element in our minds that we said, well, there's this, but I can overlook that. You know, if, there, if there's something like that going on, be careful because that little thing that you plan on overlooking will become a huge thing and lead to in- incompatibility. And it was a very quick and very sudden when I met her, I knew almost instantly that she, that I was aligned with this person. Was it like that for you? Absolutely. I think, um, boy, you nailed it. Compatibility is huge. I, I have to say that we, we have that in common. I think the, the acceptance of the other person, I mean, there might, you know, she might like some types of foods I don't like. This is an example. And I'm just going to, this could be anything behavioral or um, personality wise. If I see something she's doing that I'm going, huh, well, you know, I'm not really, wow, that that's kind of weird. You know, I'm not really into that, you know. It's also a choice, too, of how you live your life. Um, We've already gone pretty deep into this relationship. I'm very committed to it. And I'm in, I made her comfortable enough to feel accepted that she opened up to me. That's important. And she did the same for me. And anything that's there, we're not exactly the same person. That would make life boring. We do have some differences of things, but it, instead of going, oh, I don't really like that, is like, well, that's just who she is. And that's because of her. Yeah, I, I'll add to that a little bit. My wife and I are not the same person at all. She does many things that, you know, I wouldn't do or that some things even annoy me. But I have to love those things as well. I love the differences between us. I mean, and that's what I think you're talking about is you have to accept the whole package, how they are that day. I mean, uh, when you first meet somebody, if you can't accept everything about them in that moment, forget about it. Move on until until you find somebody that you that you can accept everything, the the good and the bad, because because that's all part of who they are. Um, well, Dan, we're about out of time today, but before we go, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, it's kind of a general question, but in your life, what has been the most positive influence? and the most negative influence on your development as a man, and why? Well, an interesting question you've posed here. Um, I'm going to say 
one of the most negative influences on in my life and i have to watch it every day it is a work a labor of love is i have to watch my ego and be careful of it it's important i have it but it is also the destruction of everything i stand for if i let it go you know i have to stand up for who i am and what i am and and what i represent and i suppose that's a part of ego but ego also t- can take it so far to, to where you can become a in my opinion a disgusting human being so we have to learn to live with our ego to know the limits and create limits create boundaries for it so that it does not get the best of you and therefore have a poor influence on those you love and those in your life well thank you dan and in closing what bit of advice do you have for the men listening? What are the like the top three things you think men should focus on if they want to be a better man today than they were yesterday? You have to be the number one thing I think for me that I can pass on accountability. Take ac- accountability for your actions. Everything you say, you say it. Everything you do, you do it. Be accountable for that. You, you might be able to lie to other people or manipulate them or deny all those things, but they happened. And if you try to work around that or try to, try to skate away from that, that'll come turn around to bite you in the ass every time, every time. Um, so be accountable. It's so much easier. Um, I also look to perpetual improvement every day is a challenge on everything that threatens my accountability or my, or my honesty, myself, my ego. I want to say I, I work in a large corporate job and in, in the aerospace industry and being in a corporate environment is very difficult for me, but I've been doing it for uh, 17 years now and I'm very good at what I do. And it shows in my uh, performance reviews and in my paycheck. So I will say, I go in, I say, I will do the very best. I will work to the very best of my ability with integrity and good intent. And I will walk the path of right action. That means I will do the right thing. I will be accountable for myself. And, you know, and, and it's that every day I have to remind myself because you don't just say it and do it once and then ride the roller coaster. Every day you have to remind yourself and it's that perpetual and, and every day is a work party, you know, and I have to work. And when the work gets tough, I can't walk away from it. I, I have to roll up the sleeves and, and fight harder. And I have my, uh, my legacy. I do want to make my father proud. I do want to make my mother proud. I do want to make my grandparents proud. If they could all stand there be back alive again, my ancestors watching me, do I make them proud? Is that important? Um, To me, it is. You know why? Because I have kids and I am proud of them. I am very proud that I gave them good tools to where now they make their, their own good decisions. And they will tell you that it is because of my influence on them. They've done it. And that makes me uh, filled with such pride of them and who they are, um, I, f- I am humbled by that. So your three things were accountability, perpetual improvement, and awareness of your legacy. A thought came to me while you were talking about perpetual improvement, and 
that affirmation that you do every day, every day before you walk into the corporate building, mm-hmm. you actually say this to yourself in the parking lot. And guys, that's an example of what I've talked about on many, many episodes is the daily renewal of your commitment to yourself to be a better man. Um, it's a daily thing. And Dan, you nailed it when you said, you know, you can't just say it once and then just float along because you said it. You have to do it every day. It's a daily thing that we men who want to be better men have to do. So thank you for that. And Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. If somebody wants to connect with Dan or ask him a question, you can do that uh, through me because he'll be in flux uh, in the next few months. But um, if there's something you want to say to Dan or or comment on the episode or whatever, just send me an email at alf at beingbetter.men, and I'll make sure that I pass that along to him. Yeah, it's been a joy. It's been a long time coming that you be on the show with me, and uh, thank you. It's a pleasure, Alf, and thank you. Okay, guys, now head out into the big wide world, and remember to focus on the things that matter. Accountability, perpetual improvement, and awareness of your legacy as a man. Take Dan's advice, and never forget that our relationships are the most valuable things we possess in this life, and continue to be a better man today than you were yesterday. Until next time, this is Alf Herigstad, signing out.